Okay. Um, if you did not get notes, uh, Renata went to copy some more. I was a little short-sighted and didn't run enough off, um, forgetting that the Steelers played the first game and everyone would be here. Um, <laughs> the last couple of weeks, I ran more often, so I always start with a fairly high number and then just dwindle it, dwindle it down until I get to where how many are going to actually be here, and I misguessed uh, this evening. So uh, she will be coming when I see her come in with them. Uh, I'll just have you raise your hands if you need one. So let's open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to get to Amos, the fig-pricking prophet. Kind of got to be careful when you say that, how it comes off the tongue. So let's pray. Father, we are thankful again for your truth that you are a God of truth, but that you are a God of action, and that your action is always based in your grace and your mercy and your justice and your love. Uh, Father, tonight as we open up this book, uh, this uh, story, this real-life story of Amos, your prophet, your your mouthpiece uh, to the nations, Lord, may we hear his message and be able to apply it to our life. Uh, Father, to our nation, uh, that, uh, that we would be calling after you, that we would be following you, and uh, that we too would be your people uh, as your church, your body. And so, Father, tonight we give you these next several moments, this next hour. <clears throat> we ask that your Holy Spirit come and move among us. Fill this room, fill this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we have done Obadiah and Joel, we have looked at Micah, and now we're going to be looking at Amos. Uh, Amos, we want to look at, uh, again, we're kind of following the same routine or the same pattern, the same uh, outline that we've followed with the others, and that we will be looking at the man, we'll look at the date, we'll look at his background, and then we'll start to look at his message and what he has, uh, what it is that he said. Uh, So as we look at the man, his name is Amos. He identifies himself uh, as such. The words of Amos. uh, And this means to bear or uh, bear a burden. um, uh, To place a load upon. That's what Amos' name means. And the names always carry with them some significance. Uh, it, It tends to go along with the message. Uh, it seems that when God selected a man, he selected a man that had the name that he wanted to deliver the message for. Um, And so we are about to load Jerusalem, load Samaria, load the nations with a burden um, because uh, their sinfulness has caught up with them. And so God has has not only placed, is about to place great judgment upon them, but he is placing an incredible load on Amos himself <clears throat> for the message that he has to deliver. Uh, and Amos, uh, even though his life uh, up to that point had prepared him to deliver such a message, no one's ever really prepared to do what Amos had to do, um, <clears throat> to share what he had to share. He lives in Tekoa. Uh, that's not Georgia. Uh, that's Tekoa in Judah. And you have a map there. I don't know how easy that is to read. Uh, Tekoa is, if you see the Sea of uh, the Dead Sea, <clears throat> the north of the Dead Sea is Jerusalem. Just south of Jerusalem is Tekoa, um, and that's where Amos lived. Uh, 
It's about 12 miles south of Jerusalem, 18 miles to the Dead Sea. Everything between Tekoa and the Dead Sea was dead. Uh, it was wilderness. It was, and when they say wilderness, when we say wilderness, we think trees, forest, what? When they say wilderness, they mean desert. It's wild. There is nothing growing there. Um, <clears throat> and so it was just rocks and dirt and dust from Tekoa all the way to uh, the Dead Sea. It was hard. It was rocky. Uh, there were incredible valleys and deep canyons. Uh, it was really a dangerous place where Amos lived, uh, the, the area that he was used to traveling in. Uh, <clears throat> in the New Testament, we know this area as the wilderness of Judea. And can anyone tell me what happened in the wilderness of Judea? A couple different things. See where we're at. What happened in this area? Temptation of Jesus. That's the main one I was looking for. Um, that uh, this is where Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted, led into the desert to be tempted. This is the area he went. That 18-mile stretch between kind of Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Tekoa, all the way over to the Dead Sea. Um, and so this, this rugged area, this is also probably where John the Baptist resided um, when he was, you know, a voice calling from the wilderness. This is where he was at. He would have come from this area as well. And so we have the prophet Amos <clears throat> living in Tekoa um, in, in a very rugged, very hard. Uh, anyone who lived there was going to be hard-nosed. Uh, they were going to be rugged because you had to be to survive there. And, uh, and that was perfect for what God was going to have him do. Now, Amos as an occupation, what he did for a living prior to God calling him to be a prophet. If you turn to Amos chapter 7, usually they refer, they, uh, <clears throat> they give us a hint at the beginning. Amos doesn't really say anything until almost near the end uh, as to who he is and, and what it is that he uh, does for a living. Amos chapter 7 verse 14, Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd. And I, was also, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Okay, so before God's call upon him, before God met him in the wilderness and said, I want you to go tell the people. I've got a message that you need to tell them. You're going to be my mouthpiece. He was a shepherd. Probably a better understanding of that would be a herdsman. Um, sometimes when we think of shepherd, it would be he just had a little flock. Um, a herdsman, he, he had a, a large flock. In fact, he may very well have overseen other shepherds. He would have been like the director of shepherding. Uh, and, uh, and so he saw, oversaw several flocks. And the words that they used, uh, the Hebrew word, and I don't know Hebrew, so I've got to take the, the uh, commentary's word for it that I was reading, uh, through that, said that it was actually the, the type of shepherd that he was. It was a small breed of sheep. Uh, it was a, a shepherd of a certain type of sheep, one that could live in the rugged area that they were in, um, as well as um, that uh, the wool was very valuable. And so he oversaw this really kind of corporation of shepherds that raised these smaller breed of sheep 
that had very valuable wool. And uh, that, was, that was his main job. It also says that he was a, uh, a, a that he took care of sycamore fig trees. Um, and what that is, is that he was a fig pricker. How many of you know what a fig pricker does other than frick pigs? Frick, prick figs. See, I told you, you got to be careful when you say it because it doesn't come out right. When you have a, a sycamore or a fig tree, that in order for the fig to ripen, it had to be pricked. It had to be bruised. It had to be damaged. And in order you, once you damaged it, then it could fully ripen. Odd. That's what he did. He went around and he pricked the figs, preparing them to ripen, okay, at just the right season. Now, there's a lesson just in that. There's an entire sermon just in that illustration that in order to fully mature, in order to fully ripen, you've got to go through suffering. You've got to be bruised. You've got to be pricked, if you will. Um, and so this is what Amos did. So Amos now is prepared to, to go and prick Israel a little bit, to, to bruise them, to wound them in hopes that they would mature um, because they were not living a very mature life at that time. Um, and so the, the figs that he, were, that he was pricking, that he was taking care of, um, had a very sweet taste. They were a very watery fruit. So when you were in the desert, that's what you wanted. This was a very juicy fruit uh, that they could eat. And so again, the, the very valuable wool, uh, as well as the figs that were eaten primarily by poor people. Uh, they were of abundance. Everyone could get them. Uh, and so they were, they were a main source of food for the poor. Um, now, Amos was prepared throughout his life to speak against, uh, to, to, to bring the message that he was to bring to Israel. Uh, living amongst the poor, working with primarily shepherds who were one step above nothing, Okay, the shepherds were, you, we know from the New Testament, they were looked down upon. Uh, they were the dirty, uh, cruddy, foul people of their society, the bottom rung of the totem pole. And this is who he worked with. This is who he oversaw. He raised food that the poor ate. He did a lot of work amongst the poor. Um, he was probably not a wealthy man himself uh, in that. But he was, he was especially prepared by God in his life for what God wanted him to do. And there's another lesson in that for us, that God is using everything within our life to prepare us for the call that he is placing upon us, for what it is he wants us to do. And so when we get a little down because we had to go through this or we didn't have that or I wish my life were different, no, don't ever wish your life were different. God is wanting to use every part of your life to fulfill the call that he is placing upon it. He is preparing you for what you are to do. Um, and he continues to prepare right up until the point of death. And then he'll prepare us for that uh, to when we step into his presence. And so God uses every aspect. Nothing goes to waste. And we can learn that from, from Amos. And so Amos, working with the poor, uh, he had developed a distaste for corruption. He had seen it, no doubt, working amongst the shepherds, 
Uh, he had seen the injustice given to them, the injustice to the poor, uh, corruption within the government as he was dealing with probably officials, uh, high officials from time to time in his job. Almost, you know, if he was a manager, he would be a go-between a lot uh, and dealing with, with the public uh, officials. So he had seen the corruption. He had seen the, the way the poor were treated, and he, and he developed a, a distaste for that. Uh, and he was one then that probably was able to understand their culture because he had seen a lot of it. He had, he had experienced a lot of the ins and the outs of, of Judah. He had experienced the ins and the outs of, of Israel. He knew uh, what the culture was. He was from Judah, but his primary message was to Israel. Now, that's a hard thing. Because you are a foreigner, not liked, going into and telling them things they don't want to hear. About who they are and the God that they say they follow is being displeased with the way, with their behavior, with the way they are living. And so he is facing opposition all the way along. Um, and, and so, uh, but being able to, to be an outsider gave him objectivity. He was able to go in and not be wrapped up, not afraid to offend because he's going to say what he wants and then go home. Uh, he's going to deliver his message and walk away. I, I always say I, I love to do pulpit supply in other churches because I can go in, lower the boom, and walk away. Um, in fact, there's a lot of times that I will ask pastors when if they're going on vacation or they're, you know, wanting me to come in and speak, what have you always wanted to say, but were afraid to? And then I bring that message. Um, and I, I can hit the things that the pastor says are, are sensitive areas because I can walk in, I can say it, and then I get to go home. Um, and he can come in and take care, minister, either pick up the pieces or, or, or start the healing process that needs to, to happen. And not, not, not in, a, in a bad way do I go in, but there are just some messages that have to be delivered. And, and Amos had a message that had to be delivered. And he was able to walk in with some objectivity uh, as an outsider and deliver that message. Um, as hard as it was going to be, he could be strong, he could be bold, uh, he could be rugged, and he was perfectly suited for that. That was his life, bold, strong, and rugged. Uh, that was the way he had to live. Um, so he, he even throughout, I don't know how many of you were able to read uh, Amos this last week, but he, he kind of distanced himself from the other prophets of the day because he saw the corruption in them too. Uh, not Isaiah and Hosea and the ones that we have here, but there were many prophets. And many would come in God's name, and, and many of them were corrupt. Uh, the, the not true prophets, the false prophets, uh, they were in it for themselves. And so he, when he would go into Samaria and he would come as a prophet, he distanced himself from those false prophets. He did not want to be included in their company. Um, and very much like Micah had done. Uh, because he was going to show the corruption and uh, and really the the public opinion of those prophets, he did not want to share that. Uh, if we look at the date of when he prophesied, when this was uh, written, 
Uh, it was probably around 750 B.C. Uh, he gives us some information. He says that it was two years before the earthquake. I didn't do a lot of research because I figured, okay, so what? I couldn't find in the two or three books that I was looking at any reference to an earthquake. So they commentators probably didn't make a big deal out of it either. But uh, apparently there was a big earthquake at around that time, and, uh, and Amos was identifying himself with the time after uh, two, year, or two years before that earthquake, uh, which means this book was probably written two or three years after the prophecy was given uh, because it had reference to the earthquake. So it had to have come after that. He talks about kings that he was with uh, or that he uh, prophesied in the time of. He said the, uh, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. That would be Uzziah. Uh, or if you look back in Second Kings chapter 14, it, ref- it refers to him as Azariah. Uh, same guy, okay? Uh, don't let that throw you. A lot of times the names change depending on who is writing it, depending on how they referred to them. So Uzziah and Azariah are the same king um, of Judah. Uh, we, he's the one that became king at 16 and reigned for 52 years, probably one of the longest reigns uh, that, that Israel or that Judah saw. He was a good king. Uh, but he did not remove the high places. We talked about that last week. He, again, did not remove, did not tear down the high places. Uh, and he was afflicted with leprosy until he died. Uh, his life did not end uh, on a happy note, um, even though he was a good king. Um, he acquired uh, leprosy. God afflicted him with leprosy until the day he died. And then he was the father of Jotham. So Amos, if we were to do them chronologically, Amos really comes before Micah, um, but we took Micah first. Um, And so Amos and then Micah came in with Jotham uh, when he was the king. Jeroboam II uh, is the king of Israel. He can also, you can find him in 2 Kings chapter 14. He reigned Israel for 41 years. Now, good king or bad king? Bad king, because every king of Israel was a bad king. Every king was an evil king. Um, None of them did what was right in God's eyes. And so you have Uzziah reigning Judah for 52 years. um, Good king, following after God, seeking after God. You have Jeroboam, king of Israel. Evil king, not following after God at all. um, Not even pretending uh, to do that. This is who... uh, this is where we are at uh, in the kind of political, political arena. A uh, little background. Uh, we painted the social picture last week with Micah. Um, next week, we're going to paint the spiritual picture when we look at Hosea. And, uh, but this week, we want to c- try to paint the political picture, what was going on at 750 B.C. in this, in this century um, of Micah, Hosea, and, and Amos when they were prophesying. Um, What was very real to Amos and became even more real with Micah and Hosea was that Assyria was on the rise. Assyria was gaining power. Um, And they had been gaining power for 100 years. They had been gaining power in that area. Um, Assyria, which lied to the east um, in the days of Elisha, 
hundred years prior to Amos, so around 850, about the time Obadiah and Joel uh, were doing their thing. Um, Assyria tried to gain control of the world. They were bent on world domination. That was what they, and they were just going to pick off little countries, big countries, and they were just going to ride their way through and continue to uh, take over all of these nations. Israel and a, and a group of small nations resisted a hundred years prior to, to Amos. So 850, uh, Israel and a number of other small nations banded together to fight the Assyrians. And I don't know that they won, but they didn't lose. Okay. Assyria backed off, went back to their borders in Assyria and left them alone. And so for the last hundred years, Israel and Judah have not been threatened by Assyria. Assyria kind of just let them go. Now, Assyria had a plan. Assyria's plan was let them go and let them get incredibly rich. Then we'll go in and take them. We'll let them do all the work. We'll let them get wealthy. We'll let them be at ease. We'll let them get a little complacent uh, in their own life. And then we will march in. Now, that's planning. When you're planning something that you're not going to carry out. You're planning it, and 100 years later, someone else is going to carry it out. Um, That's commitment to it. And so that was where, uh, for the last 100 years prior to Amos, Israel and Judah became very prosperous. Uh, They were were becoming very rich. Uh, Jeroboam II, reigning for 41 years, uh, half of that time, or... So uh, Jeroboam II was reigning. Uzziah in Judah reigning for 52 years. So there's peace. I mean, there were kings that didn't last months in some. They would be overthrown. Um, Most of them, you know, 10 or 12 years and someone was coming in and killing them and then new king would rise up. These guys reigned for 41 and 52 years. So they were pretty comfortable. Both nations became pretty comfortable. Money was rolling in. They were prosperous. There was, seemed to be peace among their nation. Uh, not a whole lot going on that way. Um, and that gave a lot of stability to both the northern and the southern kingdoms. So politically, there's not a lot of threats right now. And they, they could feel that, that they were safe. Assyria hasn't bothered us for a long time. We don't see any threats from anyone else. Israel especially had made an alliance with these other 10 nations that I'm sure they still held. We're still on fairly good terms with them. Um, But Assyria got a new ruler. His name is Tiglath-Pileser, and he was bent on conquest. 2 Kings chapter 15 Write it down, look at it later. Read 14, 15, 16 of Second Kings. It's kind of the, the political story of what was going on. I'm just going to tell it to you here real quick. Um, Tiglath-Pileser was, was bent on conquest. He was now going to say, I'm going to go and take the world. I'm going to gain command of the world. Um, Ahaz formed a treaty with Tiglath to save Judah. Okay, in Judah, in uh, 2 Kings chapter 16, Ahaz at that time was the king of, of, uh, uh, of Judah, and he, he, they formed a treaty uh, in order to save Judah. 
There were three other major political happenings that kind of set the stage for what Amos was going to to do. Uh, The first one was with the rise of Assyria uh, under Tiglath, Syria and Israel joined forces and attempted to force Judah into joining them. Okay, so Syria is a a nation just north uh, of of, uh, Samaria, north of the northern kingdom is where Syria is. Assyria would be coming in that way. They would go through Syria first, Damascus, Syria, and come right on down into uh, Israel, and then right on down in between the the Great Sea and and the Dead Sea, right on through Judah. And so Syria and Israel combined forces, and they tried to get uh, Judah to to join them because they say they're just going to come right through. They wipe out both of us, you're next. Um, Tiglath captured Damascus and took them captive. So he has taken Syria. Tiglath died in that battle. And Hosea, the king of Israel, revolted and refused to pay tribute to Assyria. Okay, so what happens is if they come in and they kind of put their power over you, even if they don't totally destroy you, they say, we rule you and you have to pay tribute. Basically, it's like a tax. They had to pay. Well, Hosea, the king of, of uh, Israel at that time, refused to pay the tribute to Assyria. Shalmaneser, who has now took over for Tiglath, laid siege to Samaria. Um, and so he's like, okay, if you're not going to pay, we're coming in. We'll just take it. Shalmaneser lay siege to, to Samaria, the capital of Israel at the time. And he dies in that battle. And so a new king of Assyria takes over called Sargon. He captures Samaria, finishes the battle, and led the leading citizens of Samaria into captivity. This was the end of Israel. Uh, Israel was to be no more after this. This is the Assyrians coming in, capturing them, taking them over, and removing them. Uh, Taking the the lead citizens. They didn't need to worry about the rest. They just took the, the prime cream of the crop citizens, the leaders, uh, the young leaders, and took them to Assyria. Judah led a revolt against Assyria as they continued to march on down. And and while Sennacherib, who uh, was leading the Assyrian army at that time, marched into Palestine and destroyed a lot of the villages, uh, we can read in 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19, the incredible story of the angel of the Lord showing up and protecting Judah, protecting Jerusalem. Now, the angel of the Lord, you've probably heard me say before, is Jesus. Uh, Jesus in the Old Testament, whenever you read uh, in the Old Testament and you see that the angel of the Lord showed up, that was Jesus before uh, before the New Testament, before he was born in the Incarnation. Um, anytime it says an angel, that's just an angel. But the angel is Jesus. And at this point, the angel of the Lord, Jesus, showed up and slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, and they retreated back to Nineveh is where they went back to. And Judah was spared. Um, I'd have to look on a map, but I think it's Iraq. That's what I was going to say. Iran, Iraq. I think it's Iraq, uh, more northern up in that that area. 
Nineveh was their big city. And Nineveh is still, so if you could go find a Nineveh on the map today, um, it, but I think it is Iraq. Um, <clears throat> and so that's, that's what's happening. You're saying that there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of peace for 100 years, and then there's a lot of turmoil and a lot of things happening. And Amos is thrown into the middle of that. Um, if we look at Amos's message, that's where we want to spend the rest of the rest of our time is looking at what it is he said in these incredibly tough circumstances, uh, incredibly tough situation. He spoke to surrounding nations, uh, chapter one, verses three to twenty-three. We see that he he spoke to Damascus. Uh, he had words for Damascus, and he always started them off with for three sins of Damascus, even for four. I will not turn back my wrath. Um, so God is, is not going to spare them. Uh, he, he is going to uh, deliver judgment upon these nations. And so he starts with Damascus. We can see then that he goes into Gaza. He goes into Tyre. He goes into Edom, Ammon, Moab. That's the entire surrounding area around Israel, north, south, east, and west, um, are all of the nations that, that God is going to judge. Um, for their sins. He is going to uh, bring judgment upon them. And so Amos speaks very boldly to everyone, all of the surrounding nations. No one's getting off the hook uh, with this. And then he spoke to the southern kingdom in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He says, this is what the Lord says for three sins of Judah. Even for four, I will not turn back my wrath because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees because they have been led astray by false gods. The gods their ancestors follow, I will fire, I will send fire upon Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. And then he also speaks to the northern kingdom, to Samaria in verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Uh, So this entire region is who Amos is directing his message to. Uh, the God had led him to speak to the corruption of Israel and warn them of the coming doom if they did not repent. God always gives them an opportunity to turn. He always gives them an opportunity to repent, as he does us. That, that that call to repentance is always still there, that when we find ourselves caught in sin, and I don't mean caught as found out, I mean trapped in sin, we commit a sin. He always gives us forgiveness, that, that if we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, and, and so repentance and, and, and confession is always uh, given to us by God. Amos chapter 3, verse 11, Therefore this is what the Sovereign Lord says, An enemy will overrun your land, pull down your strongholds, and plunder your fortresses. This was the, if you don't repent, this is what's going to happen. Amos was alive to see that, um, because that's what Assyria did. Assyria came in and plundered, tore down the walls of Samaria, and, uh, and plundered their fortresses. Um, and so this message that he was, it wasn't a, it wasn't a future message. It wasn't a, you know, you got 50 years. Uh, this was in his lifetime. They witnessed it. They saw it, uh, saw it happening. Chapter five, he really gets into what his message is about. And this is where we need to listen. We need to listen very closely to what 
Israel was being judged for. Um, because we can learn a lot about the character of God by understanding what it is God did not like about Israel. And the first thing that chapter 5 deals with is that they did not seek God with sincerity. We need to. We need to seek God with sincere hearts, sincere minds. Uh, amidst the corruption, they felt that all of their ceremony would save them. They felt that their wealth proved that they were precious in God's eyes. Look how God has blessed. Look, how, look at what God has done for us. And yet in the midst of it all, they were not worshiping him with sincere hearts at all. They were worshiping. They were carrying out the festivals. They were doing all of the things in the temples, in the sanctuaries. But it was all for nothing. Chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 says, Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Okay, Bethel and Gilgal were two uh, places of worship in the northern kingdom. And, and so God is basically telling them, when you go to worship, you're sinning. And when you go again, you sin some more. That your worship has become sinful because it is not with a sincere heart. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the Lord. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. The irony of that statement is that the more they went to worship, the farther away from God they got. They were not finding him. One, because they were not looking for him. They were looking for a good time. They were looking for a party. They were looking for a celebration. But they were not looking for God. And more was not helping them. He says, go ahead and offer. When he says to, to offer your sacrifices every morning, he's talking about the annual sacrifice. He said, go ahead and offer that annual sacrifice every single day if you'd like not doing you any good. I'm not accepting it. It's not getting you closer to me. And then he says, and, and offer the, the third year tithe every third day if you want. Bring it more often. Tithe every three years, every third year, because they used to do that, that third tithe once every 10 years. And so he's saying, go ahead, do it more often. It's not doing you any good. Doing it more won't correct the problem because worship did not result in holy living and worship should result in a changed life. Coming in and worshiping God, we should leave different than we came in because if we're coming in with a sincere heart and if we're bringing a, a tithe and an offering and a, and a sacrifice, not a literal animal sacrifice, but a sacrifice of our heart, a sacrifice of our mind. What does Romans 12 say? That our spiritual worship is being transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's our spiritual worship. That's our sacrifice. We're sacrificing ourselves, in a sense, our wants, our, our will that we're bringing and laying upon the altar. And, and, and God is saying, if you don't do that with a sincere heart, you might as well not even show up because you're doing more harm than good to yourself that we need to come in and, and, and experience God. 
And as we've experienced God and God begins to transform us, maybe in little ways, maybe in huge ways, as we worship, we leave different than what we came in. Sometimes it's a noticeable difference. Sometimes it's just a step in the right direction that only you know about. Others may not recognize the transformation, that, that, that process that, it, that has happened that day. Uh, but we need to come with sincere hearts. Israel did not. And what, what it resulted in then is that he spoke about the same problems that Micah spoke about. There was depression and poverty. Uh, it was a very, very poor and needy uh, people because the, the people who were in control kept them poor and needy, uh, treated them poorly. Uh, they had slavery for small debts, chapter 2, verse 6. Uh, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Slavery over, I need a pair of sandals. Here, have this person and give me those sandals. I mean, they were selling people for shoes. Not that they were great shoes. That's just what they thought of the people. And uh, chapter 8, verse 6, uh, says again, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. So they, they were even unjust practices. And when they would bring up the wheat, they also brought in the sweepings, the no good stuff, and they were weighing that and selling it as well. And so everyone was just getting ripped off. Uh, they, they were not fair. They were, not, they were dishonest. Um, there was no justice in the court systems. We know that from Micah. It was the same for, for Amos in his situation. Um, and there was no life change. There was no transformation for a hundred years. Samaria, as I said, they never had a good king. They always had evil king. Never did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but they continued to worship. They continued to offer the sacrifices. They continued to go through the motions. We must never find ourselves going through the motions. And I know I've been there. I've gone through the motions. I've shown up on a Sunday morning gone in, sang the song, sat down at the right time, stood up at the right time, walked out unchanged. It's not a good day when that happens. And we can find ourselves in in the rut like that. And what we need to do is what Amos is saying. Come back to God. Repent of that. Come back and seek Him with a sincere heart. Continue to to, to seek after Him uh, with sincerity. Amos was saying, Amos was telling the Israelites who had never experienced this for a hundred years, generations of Israelites had not heard the truth, seen the truth. He's telling them that a relationship with the living God should result in Israel looking different than other nations. He said Israel should look different. Judah should look different than all of the nations that are around you. But you're not. You formed alliances with them. You look just like they do. You're no different than them. So the question that Amos asks us is, does our worship express itself in a changed life? Are we different? Can we see the difference? Maybe, you know, over time, we should always be able to see the difference. Are you different today than you were a year ago? Is the sin that hounded you a year ago, maybe it's still hounding you, but you're seeing victory over that. You've seen victory along the way. You have overcome 
sin. You've overcome temptation. You've been able to say no where before you gave in. Are you seeing a changed life? Because that's what God is looking for. And that's what God receives from a sincere heart. Chapter 3, verse 2, You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your sins. Israel was the chosen nation. God says, out of all the nations around you that I am also dealing with right now, I thought I could deal with you differently because you were called out to be different. And now all of the judgment that I'm giving Damascus and Tyre and Edom and all of the others that he lists, I got to give it to you too. You were the chosen ones. Now, what we have to understand from that is that even though they were chosen nation, they were not the favorite nation. Who was the favorite nation? Trick question. There is no favorite nation. God does not play favorites. God has a plan to redeem the world and he had to bring the Savior into the world through some nation. And because he looked down and he saw Abraham thousands of years prior to this, he said, that's my man. I'm going to raise a nation out of him that I will bring the Savior through to save all the rest of the nations. So while Israel was not a favorite nation, they were the chosen nation by which the Savior would come from. But what happened was they began to think we're the favorite nation. And God will not do anything to their favorite son. They were spoiled brats. They were thinking they could do as they pleased. So long as we showed up to church on time, went through the the sacrifices and the rituals and the feasts, and I kind of towed the line. I could pretty much do whatever I want. They misunderstood who God was. They forgot what it meant to live in a relationship with God. They forgot what it meant to be obedient to a heavenly creator who is righteous and who has chosen you for, for, for the greatest purpose ever to bring up the one who would save the world, to raise them up out of you. And so all of this, this chapter 5, is a call to repent. True repentance results in true forgiveness and change. Not saying that you will never sin in that way again, but it won't be as easy for a person to sin again if they've truly repented. It will become a bigger struggle to sin in that area. If we truly repent, if we, if we, if we, if we, and they always said, you know, tore their clothes, if we, if we tear our hearts, if we tear our minds, if we truly repent, if we truly come with sorrow uh, to the God and, and seeking forgiveness with a desire to turn and go the other way, that's what repentance means. It means a 180. It doesn't just mean go on, hope you don't do it again, I'm sorry. No, this is that I'm completely changing. I'm turning, going the other way. I'm going to now set up guide, uh, some guardrails in my life that that doesn't happen again. I'm not going to put myself in that situation if at all possible. Whatever leads me into that temptation, I'm fleeing that. 
If we truly do that, then the next time it's going to be harder to sin. And the next time we, we, we repent, we set up guardrails again, it's going to be harder and harder. And that's the process of overcoming. Sometimes once is enough. But you know from your own personal experience, sometimes once isn't enough. And we get tripped up again. But the idea is it's not as easy the next time. Bill. Right, right. And that's what they were doing. They were relying solely on the corporate worship. They were coming to the feast, coming to the sacrifice. That's a very good point. The worship that, that, that Amos is talking about here is that corporate worship within the temple. And what it does take, that sincerity, is the daily worship, the private worship. Um, and that they were not doing. Um, look at our nation. Our 200 plus, what are we at? 236? We had 236 years? Something like that. Yeah, 236. Wow, that was quick math right there off the top of my head. 236-year-old nation. We're really young as far as nations go. 236 years. While Israel is still the chosen, we are not. We've been given a lot of freedom and a lot of opportunities regarding faith in God. And with that carries a lot of responsibility as the church of God in the United States. Remember I said before, I want us to begin thinking not as citizens of the United States, but we are citizens of heaven living in the United States. So as the church of God in the United States, we have a lot of responsibility because we've been given a lot of freedom. We've been given a lot of opportunities to make change happen, to bring others, to to advance the kingdom. And we have done a lot of things in 236 years as a nation. I, I was looking for a book. Um, I have, I used to have <laughs> a book on my shelf called What Christianity Meant to the World, or I don't even remember the title, but it basically is, is just a story of everything that, that Christianity has, has meant to the world. And a lot of it was what, what has happened out of the, church of, the in the church of God in the United States. Um, can't find that book. If anyone borrowed that book from me, I'd love to have it back. Um, I blame my wife. She said she didn't take it. I believe her, um, <clears throat> but I, I've had a lot of books walk out of my office. But we've been given a lot of freedom and, and, and an opportunity to the point that some of us think that the U.S. has become the chosen. But with that great opportunity comes great responsibility. And while we have done a lot of great things, we must be careful that we don't begin to think we're the favorite. Because the church is chosen for such a time as this. And we as the members of Christ's body have a responsibility to carry out. We have work to do. And we must be about that work. Because chapter 6 goes in And Amos says, not only was your worship insincere, but now I'm going to to condemn your luxurious living. 
you've become very complacent in the way in which you live out your life, Israel. Israel's misguided religious views had carried over into the way they lived their life. Wrong priorities. Look at uh, Amos chapter 6. Let's just read the first 14 verses and, and give Amos. This is Amos's uh, description or God's description through Amos of what Israel was like. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. That's Israel. And to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Kalne and look at it. Go from there to, to Great Hamath and then go to Goth in Philistia. Are you better than those kingdoms? Was their land larger than yours? You put off the evil day and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. If ten men are left in one house, they too will die. And if a relative who is to burn the bodies comes to carry them out of the house and asks anyone still hiding there, is anyone with you? And he says, no. Then he will say, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For the Lord has given the command and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plow there with oxen? Do you have turned, you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness? You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, did we not take Carnaim by our own strength? For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, O house of Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Lebo Hamath to the valley of Arabah. He's lower in the boom. He was tired of the complacency. He was tired of the, of the luxurious living of the me first mentality of the injustice that was going on. We see that, <clears throat> number one, there was national confidence in verses one and two. You feel secure in Mount Samaria. This was a high place, a well-fortified city. They felt safe there. Nothing, could, nothing bad could ever happen to them. Uh, notable men, their confidence and trust was, was placed in the power of their nation. Their confidence and trust was placed in their own strength and their own ability. He points out other powerful nations, and some of those you can find on a map, and some of them you can't. They may long be gone. But he says, are you greater than them? I can overthrow them. I will overthrow you. You're not so great just because you're Israel. They were becoming complacent in the fact that they were Israel. Number two, there was no fear of God in them. They caused fear in other people. The poor feared them, the notable men. The prophets always spoke of a day of judgment coming. Sin cannot go unpunished. The Israelites were were living as if it never would come. They had nothing to worry about. They were all that and more. Number three, their self-indulgence. Verses four and six, they had couches with ivory inlay. 
Ivory doesn't come natural to Israel. That had to be imported. And so they inlaid their furniture with this imported material that was incredibly valuable. Um, and, and as an honor to themselves, as pride in themselves. And look at what we can do. Uh, wine by the bullfuls, because a glass was, just wasn't enough. You know, when we, <laughs> when we go to eat a salad, you know, you have the little salad bowl, right? And when I go to fix a salad, I use a serving bowl because the salad bowl just won't do. Okay? That was the picture that popped into my mind when he said you're drinking wine by the bullfuls because a glass just wouldn't do. You get tired of just keep filling it up. Just give me a big old bowl. I'll chug the bowl. That was the way they lived. That was the way they, that was normal life for them. Um, And interestingly enough, one commentator pointed out that these were the bulls, that that word that was used is actually the bulls used for sacrificial purposes. So they had taken basically the communion cups, okay, although a cup wasn't big enough, that's, and they were using them for their own parties. They were taking the the sacrificial elements, furniture and and, and, uh, supplies, and using it for themselves, for their own self-indulgence. And then the fourth thing is the final warning, verses 9 through 14. This was when God was finally saying sin will be dealt with. Um, Verse 12, do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plow there with oxen? Do you have turn? The answer to those questions is no. Um, And what they're saying is that I am going to turn your country, your Samaria, your city, your fortress, everything you find pride in, into a rocky crag that people won't even, won't even bother riding a horse on, okay? Um, one won't even plow there because of the devastation, okay? They have made God's justice and righteousness out to be something that it is not. Um, when the world looked at Israel and wondered about Israel's God, they were not getting a clear picture, and God did not like it. Because Israel was called to be different. They were the called out ones. Because they were to reflect the image of God. They were to reflect what what God looked like. They were to reflect his character and the way in which they conducted their lives. And when God looked down, God saw the nation of Israel that looked like all the other nations and no longer looked like him, no longer looked like his son, his child, his nation. And that's the message that we have for today. And I, I posted this on Facebook and I got very no response. <laughs> I, there were a couple people that responded. Um, but this is the message. When the world looks at the church and wonders what God is like, because we're the best picture of God, should be. Well, we're this world's best picture of God how out of focus we might be. And as believers, as individuals, we have been redeemed with the image of God back in us, with the Holy Spirit in us. And so here's my question to you. This is what I posted on Facebook to see what kind of response I could get. Sometimes I do things just to, you know, tickle the horse and see if he kicks. Um, 
Let's say you know nothing about God, okay? You are a person that knows absolutely nothing about God, and you wanted to describe him to someone. And all you had was what happens during a worship service or what you observed in the daily lives of believers. How would you describe God? How, how would you describe God if all you had to go on, you know absolutely nothing about him, so you have no prior experience with him from which to draw. But you walk into, I don't even say our church, any church, but ours is the one that we have, uh, that we know about. So you walk into a church on Sunday morning and you just observe. How do you describe God when you walk out? You live next door to a Christian. You live next door to you. And you observe. And based upon their life, who have been created and redeemed in the image of God, who is a Christ follower, how would you describe God? How clear of a picture. You see, when God looked down at Israel, he said, that's a messed up picture. I've got to get rid of it. I've got to wipe it clean. I've got to wipe it off. I've got to judge that. Amos ends with five visions. He talks about the devouring locusts in chapter 7. He says that he was, God was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested, and just as the second crop was coming up, when they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. And the Lord relented. Amos cried out, and God withdrew the judgment at that time. And then verse 4, flaming fire comes in, and again Amos pleads, and in verse 5, saves Israel from the fire. And then there is a plumb line in verses 7 and 8. This is what the Lord, this is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. God is measuring the sins of the people. He said, here's my standard. Here's the plum. And they are nowhere near it. The standard, square, straight. Yeah, it's just plum. Uh, and so this, this is the standard. This is the way they were supposed to live, and they are off plum. They're not level. Um, they're no longer living straight. Um, the sins, God was measuring the sins against his perfect standard, and they were found wanting. Uh, Verses 12 and 13 tells us just how far they had come. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Amaziah was a, uh, a priest of Bethel. So he's one of the priests that worked in the temple area or the sanctuary of Bethel. <clears throat> Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Do you see what it had become? God was no longer welcome in his sanctuary. It had become the king's sanctuary. They were now worshiping the king, 
like all the other nations around them did. And God was no longer welcome in this place. And this had become the kingdom's sanctuary. Uh, And so that was just how far they had fallen. And then we see the basket of ripe fruit in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Is that a basket of ripe fruit? I answered, then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The time has come. Uh, it, it's, I, I can't take it anymore. I can't watch this. I can't see the way they're living. Um, and part of the judgment is going to be removing God's word. Uh, God was no longer going to speak. And, and there was going to come a time when God just silenced and no longer spoke. So even, even trying to find direction, there would be none. He would be nowhere to be found. And we see that for 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, God was silent. What Amos said here happened. Now, it didn't happen right away. It didn't happen right as soon as, as we know that they, they came back. But God silenced. God removed his word. He no longer spoke to the people. And then he saw a devastated sanctuary in chapter 9, verses 1 to 10, that God is standing by the altar in the sanctuary pouring out judgment on all who had denied him. But even in the midst of all that, as all the prophets did, he ended on a good note. Chapter chapter 9, verse 11, In that day I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them. Probably a dual prophecy um, happened 70 years later, uh, or well, more than that, 70 years after Judah went in. Um, they did come back and they settled the land um, and Israel there. And then in 1948, Israel was established as a nation once again, and they will not be uprooted. They will not become a non-nation again. No one will overthrow them. Uh, God has promised that. Uh, They will continue to be a nation and other nations need to kind of be on their side uh, because they are still God's chosen nation uh, of which he is going to work through. And all of his promises and his purposes will be carried out through Jerusalem, through through the nation of Israel uh, in his time. Bill. Yes. Yeah, some of that is still future. Um, God is still working. And then that's it. God is still working his plan. Um, and so we need to be about a part of that plan. So that's my question for you tonight. If someone were to look on your life, how would they describe God based solely upon you and, and the way in which you worship, the way in which you live? Uh, that. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful again for your truth, uh, for your message. Uh, Father, we thank you for Amos and his boldness and his directness and his willingness. Uh, Lord, the, the message still rings true for us today, uh, that we need to be people that sincerely seek you out. 
that, Father, we need to not become complacent in the good things that we have, that we may not become come idle and rest and sit back and, and revel in what we have, uh, what you have given us. But, Father, use it and continue to work and continue to build your kingdom uh, in, in, in here, around the world, Father, until Jesus comes, until that final culmination when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom fresh and new. Until that day, we continue to pray, we continue to work, we continue to serve. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, Hosea. No, next week, a special speaker. Uh, And so then two weeks, Hosea.